the book of Acts. And I've got, uh, I've actually got some changes coming in my speaking schedule that I've got to let you guys in on. I'll be doing that in a couple weeks. Just to let you know, we're going to be taking a little bit different direction than what I thought. It's the thing about God. You think you're going this way, and all of a sudden God, nope, we're going this way. So, anyway. So, we're in again this section of the book of Acts where we're looking at the, the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul. And, and Paul sort of being bounced around from one uh, administrator to another administrator in the Roman Empire... And it seems as if he's just sort of at their mercy. And we're learning a lot about, you know, navigating times in life where we may feel that we're just sort of at the mercy of other people. But what we want to emphasize again tonight is that Paul was never a helpless or hopeless victim in any of the things that he went through. And we're going to show again tonight that neither are we. We may seem like we're just bouncing from one thing to another and, and, and at the mercy of, of people uh, who are only interested in themselves, but uh, God's hand is on us and we are in God's hands just like the Apostle Paul. So before we begin, too, this is sort of in the middle, this chapter 25 is sort of in the middle of a time where last week we saw where Paul was before Felix uh, one Roman administrator. Now tonight he's before Festus, another Roman administrator. And then next week we're going to finally see before he sails off to Rome that he is before Agrippa. Uh, so it's just like I said, he's being passed down from one politician, if you will, to another to hear his case. Uh, I, I want to mention this, and I think this is an important principle for us. That it was only, though, when the Roman administrators were largely ignorant of the facts of the case against Paul. It was only then that concessions were made by them to the Jewish opposition. Why that's an important principle is that that's a biblical principle that sort of runs throughout Scripture when God exhorts us to know things, to, to be informed if you will. Because a lot of times we allow the enemy, if you will, room into our life simply because of a lack of knowledge. In fact, God's Word says, my people are destroyed because of a lack of knowledge. And not that knowledge alone, just sitting in our head, is enough, but there are times where if I knew more, then maybe I wouldn't be, you know, giving in as much, or giving as much room, or all of that. And we see that that's one of the principles that's being played out here. Because the Roman administrators, every one of them that brings Paul before them, is just like Pilate was with Jesus. I find no fault in this guy. He's done nothing deserving of death. Why am I here? What, what's the problem, if you will? And none of them can find anything wrong. And the only reason that, that he's being passed from one to another, and we're going to get into this in a little bit, is because these politicians, like many today, are trying to play both sides against the middle. And in a sense, they end up in the middle as well. 
So you'll notice in chapter 25, verse 1, now three days after Festus arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. So the chief priests and the most prominent men of the Jews brought formal charges against Paul to him, requesting him to do them a favor against Paul. Literally, to favor them against Paul. That's really what they were looking for. Hey, Festus, do us a favor. Favor us against Paul. In a sense, they wanted to set this up from the very beginning. This was not going to be a fair trial. And one of the reasons why, one of the main reasons why, is they knew they really didn't have anything against Paul. Sometimes in our life, we are attacked for no reason. Sometimes, as the Bible teaches us as Christians, we suffer for doing what's right. And Paul is right there. He's done nothing wrong. And yet, he is being attacked for it. So notice, they urged Festus to summon him to Jerusalem, planning an ambush to kill him along the way. Because they know, if he even gets back to Jerusalem, and someone objectively hears Paul's case, they're not going to do anything. And the hatred against this man was so great that they just wanted to get rid of him. Now, I wanted to point this out. Why are all these Roman politicians, even again going back to even Pilate with Jesus, why are they always caught in the middle? Or why are they in the middle? It's because they place themselves in the middle because of their divided loyalties. Here's something that God showed me again in this passage of Scripture. Divided loyalties will put us in the middle of something every time. You and I say, I don't like to be in the middle of things. I don't like to get in the middle. Well, the problem is, the only way we get into the middle of something is when our loyalties are divided. I mean, think of Jesus. The Jewish leadership was always trying to get Jesus in the middle of something. Always trying to pit him against this or that and trying to get him in the middle. And they never could get Jesus in the middle. Why could Jesus never get in the middle? Because Jesus' loyalties were never divided. His loyalty was to God the Father alone. And therefore, he never got in the middle. The problem with these Roman politicians are this. They understand that Paul's a Roman citizen. So he's got certain rights. And so they've got to be careful that they don't go too far into, in a sense, violating their own laws and their own decorum as Roman leaders and as Roman citizens of the Roman Empire. So they got that on one side, okay? I got to be loyal to Rome. But politically, they also want to have the Jews on their side too. They, they don't want to offend the Jews. They, they want to keep them sort of in good graces. And so that's the sort of, again, the reason why they're in the middle. They, because they've got Rome on one side and they've got the Jews on the other side and they're trying to please both of them. And that's what puts them in the middle. And it's because their loyalty is divided. We must be careful of divided loyalties because, again, if we don't like being in the middle, the only reason we usually get into the middle is because we've sided with one or the other and, and the only side, really, that we should ever side with is God. Put, put ourselves on God's side every time. That'll take care of it. 
you'll never then have to worry about, well, I'm in the middle because you, you won't be in the middle. You'll be on one side or another. I mean, Joshua even said that to the people of Israel. He said, choose this day whom you're going to serve. Stop waffling back and forth and having divided loyalties. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And we understand politicians back 2,000 years ago and politicians still today, they end up doing the same thing because of their divided loyalties. Then Festus replied that Paul, verse 4, was being kept at Caesarea and he himself intended to go there shortly. So he said, let your leaders go down there with me and if this man has done anything wrong, that they may bring charges against him. One of the things that Luke wants to do in the book of Acts, because of when it was written, is to remind people very soon after all these things took place that the Roman Empire could find nothing wrong with Paul. That was an important thing for for especially 2,000 years ago. That in other words, Paul had not done any harm to the Jewish uh, religion and, and, and to the Roman Empire. And that Christianity could exist and, and not be looked at in such a negative way. After Festus had stayed not more than eight or ten days among them, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he sat on the judgment seat and ordered Paul to be brought. By the way, this is the same word that's used for the judgment seat of Christ. In Paul's day, it was a raised platform where justice was administered. When he arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many serious charges. But notice, they were not able to prove. So Paul said in his defense, I've committed no offense against the Jewish law or against the temple or against Caesar. But Festus, again, wanting to do the Jews a favor, asked Paul, are you willing then to go back up to Jerusalem and be tried before me there on these charges? Let's Paul go back to where this all started and let's, let's have another hearing. Paul replied, I am standing before Caesar's judgment seat where I should be tried. I've done nothing wrong to the Jews, as you also know very well. If then I am in the wrong and have done anything that deserves death, I am not trying to escape dying. But if not one of their charges against me is true, no one can hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. Which, by the way, any Roman citizen could do in Paul's day. If they had went through sort of the lower court system and had felt that they were being wronged in that system, any Roman citizen could appeal to the emperor in Rome to hear their case. We're going to come back to that because that's actually where we're going to spend most of our time tonight and end with that. But anyway, let's move on. I wanted to get through this chapter, not because I wanted to rush through it, but because a lot of what we're having here tonight in Acts 25 is a rehash of what we've already went over in previous chapter with Paul's defense before Felix. It's, it's sort of the same defense, uh, just with a different person, if you will, uh, trying to administer the justice. Then after conferring with his counsel, Festus replied, you have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar then you will go. Now after several days had passed, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea to pay their respects to Festus. I want to just bring this up at this point. Agrippa is an interesting character. He was the great-grandson of the Herod who tried to kill, well, did kill all the babies around the time of Jesus' birth. This is is the great-grandson of that Herod, okay? Um, He didn't have a lot of territory 
through the Roman Empire to manage. But what the Roman Empire did give Agrippa was significant. They put him in charge of the temple, and they were put him in charge of being the one to oversee the priesthood. You see, Agrippa was part Jew. Wasn't fully Jewish, but like his great-great-grandfather, he was part Jewish. And therefore, too, obviously he had insight into the Jewish religion and tradition that these Roman administrators, who didn't have as much acquaintance with you know, the Jewish uh, Old Testament or Jewish ways, that he did. And so that's one of the reasons why we're going to see here in a minute, Festus is like, hmm, Agrippa's here. Maybe Agrippa can help me figure this out. Because up to this point, Festus, like Felix, is at a loss for what he should do with Paul. He is this political pawn that's being bounced around like a ping pong, and nobody really knows what to do with him, because they don't want to just release him, because then the Jews will be mad. But they obviously can't sentence him to death, because that would be against Roman law, because he hasn't done anything wrong. So they don't know what to do with him. So maybe Agrippa can figure this out. So we go on, verse 14. While they were staying there many days, Festus explained Paul's case to the king to get his opinion, saying, there's a man left here as a prisoner by Felix. When I was in Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews informed me about him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to hand over anyone before the accused had met his accusers face to face and had been given an opportunity to make a defense against the accusation. So after they came back, here with me, I did not postpone the case, but the next day I sat on the judgment seat and ordered the man to be brought. When his accusers stood up, they did not charge him with any of the evil deeds I had suspected. Rather, they had several points of disagreement with him about their own religion and about a man named Jesus who was dead, whom Paul claimed to be alive. Because I was at a loss, I was perplexed, I was in doubt about what to do, I could investigate these matters no further. I asked if he were willing to go to Jerusalem to be tried there on these charges. But when Paul appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of his majesty, the emperor, I ordered him to be kept under guard until I could send him to Caesar. Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he replied, you will hear him. After what Festus tells Agrippa, Agrippa's curiosities up. Well, this, this, this sounds like an interesting thing. I, I'd like to hear more about it. So notice what happens on the next day. You can just picture this, right? The next day, Agrippa and Bernice come with great pomp. The word means show, display. I mean, you can just imagine it. They probably put on their, I mean, the halftime show at the Super Bowl wouldn't have rivaled this. I mean, they, they put out all the stops. They are the, they are it. And then, along with them, entering the audience hall, it says, senior military officers, prominent men of the city. I mean, all the movers and shakers were there, right? So when Festus gave the order, Paul was brought in. Then Festus said, King Agrippa and all you who are present here with us, you see this man about whom the entire Jewish population petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting loudly that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he'd done nothing that deserved death. And when he appealed to his majesty, the emperor, I decided to send him, but I have nothing definite to write to my lord about him. 
Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after this preliminary hearing, this inquiry, this judicial examination to gather further evidence, there may be something to write. For Festus says it seems unreasonable, the word means senseless or absurd, for me to send a prisoner to the Roman emperor without clearly indicating the charges against him. And there the chapter ends. Before we go into next week and see him before Agrippa, which is a very interesting chapter. Now again, I want to point this out before we go back. It may well seem as if Paul is caught in a web of self-interest. That he's being passed from one politician and one, you know, leader to another. And all they're interested in is their own skin, their own self, their own political life. They're not interested in Paul. They're not interested in the God of Paul. They're just interested in themselves. So looking at any situation like this, including sometimes our own life, we may just conclude, wow, you know, I'm at the mercy of all these people and all they care about is themselves. But one of the things that underlies these chapters at the end of Acts with the life of Paul, as I said earlier, is that Paul never looked at himself or considered himself a helpless or hopeless victim. Now today, we live in a society where everyone either is a victim or wants to be a victim. Because I haven't been treated this way or that way or whatever. And what God is teaching us here is if I'm connected with the God of the universe and I'm in his hands, then it doesn't matter whose human hands I'm in. It doesn't matter who I'm passed to and who passes me to this or that or anything. God has a purpose for it. And one of the purposes of why God was allowing this was, think about it. Paul was, first of all, he was before all these people in Jerusalem during, uh, during the festival. Thousands of people heard Paul witness. Then Paul got an opportunity to be before the Sanhedrin, if you will, the Senate and Congress of Israel, and to declare his faith before them. And now Paul's getting a chance to be before Felix and Festus and next week Agrippa. And all these people are going to hear about Paul's faith in Christ. There are purposes for everything. And there are reasons for everything. And, and, and Paul never thought somehow that God had lost him somewhere. And oh my goodness, what's happening to me as if God doesn't know. That was never the case. We need to remember that as well. Sometimes when we're in situations in life where it seems like we are caught in a web and, and decisions that other people are making are affecting us so negatively as if, well, we're helpless or hopeless. That's never the case with someone who's connected with God and has a relationship with Him. Which is what I want to go back to. I want to end with this tonight in these last 20 minutes we have together. Because out of all the things in this chapter, this is what God impressed upon me more than anything else. And I think it will be a great encouragement to you tonight. We're going to travel through a lot of the Bible tonight looking at different verses. But I first want to go back to verse 11 of Acts 25. 
Paul, because he was a Roman citizen and it was lawful for him to do so, he says to Festus, I appeal to Caesar. The word literally means, I call upon Caesar. Now, at that time in history, Caesar, which would have been Nero at the time, was the most powerful man on planet Earth at that time. And Paul, because he was a Roman citizen, got to appeal to the most powerful person on the earth at that time, the leader of the Roman Empire, Nero. Okay? But here's something God wants us to be reminded of. We can go higher than that. You and I, because we are Christians, because we are children of God, we can always appeal to the authority in the universe. We can always call upon the creator of the universe, the sustainer of the universe, the king of kings and lord of lords, the one who is the highest and higher than any human being. So it doesn't matter what human beings may be doing to us at the time. It doesn't matter what what we are under as far as on earth here. All of us as Christians have the option and the privilege to be able to appeal to God at any time. That's why prayer is so wonderful. Because in spite of what other people, human beings are doing to us, even very powerful human beings, we always have one that's higher than them that we can appeal to. We always have one who's over all of them that we can call upon. And it wasn't like Paul wasn't calling upon God just because he appealed to Caesar. He was going through the normal, lawful channels of his day. But we know Paul well enough to know that at the very time Paul was appealing to Caesar, ultimately, Paul was calling upon his God as well. And I think one of the reasons, maybe the main reason why Paul appealed to Caesar is he felt like God had given him through these being passed from one politician to another an opportunity to finally get to Rome. You know, Paul had shared how he wanted to get to Rome and he certainly was not going to get there the way he thought he was going to get there. But now Paul saw, if I appeal to Caesar, I get to go to Rome. I finally get to go to Rome. And so maybe that's the reason he appealed to Caesar. As I got to thinking about the fact that you and I can call upon God, I had all these verses flood into my mind that I wanted to share with you. And I want to begin in Psalm, in the book of Psalms, in chapter 18 and verse 6. And I would encourage you to take this little phrase from Acts 25, verse 11. I appeal to Caesar. And remember that phrase but then write these other reference, Bible references down to be encouraged and reminded that we have always one greater than Caesar, one greater than any king, one greater than any president, one greater than our boss, one greater than any, anyone in our lives that we can always call upon, talk to, and appeal to in our lives. And that is the Lord himself. In Psalm 18, verse 6, Notice what the psalmist says. In my distress, I called to the Lord. The word distress means a narrow or tight place. 
Do you ever feel like you were in a narrow, tight place and things were closing in on you and your life? The psalmist says, it's at those times, boy, I'm so glad I could call to the Lord. I cried out to my God. And notice from his heavenly temple, he heard my voice. By the way, the word heard here in the Hebrew means to hear with great interest. It is a reminder how interested God is in hearing our prayers and when we call out to Him. And even being interested in what's going on in our life, especially when we're in those narrow, tight places. And then it says, He listened to my cry for help. And by the way, that word listen means to listen very attentively. Think about it. Sometimes we're very poor listeners. People might really want to talk about something important and our mind is on a billion other things. And sometimes we're not really gearing in or or focusing, I should say, on what they're saying and really being connected with them. And yet here's the God of the universe who's, you know, running the whole universe, billions of people all over the planet, and yet when one of us as his children lifts up a call or a cry to him, he gives us his undivided attention Every time. He is focused on us. And that should be an encouragement that at all times we can appeal to God. We can call out to Him. We can cry out to Him. Have you called on God today? Have you cried out to God today? I thought of that when Paul said, I appeal to Caesar. Then go over to chapter 34 of Psalms. i got to keep moving or we'll not get through all these. Psalm 34, verse 17. The godly cry out, and the Lord hears. By the way, in this verse, cry out here means to gather together and call together. So unlike other places where it's referenced, and it's speaking more from an individual perspective, this is a corporate perspective. That there are times where the godly need to gather together and call on God together. And it says, and the Lord hears again with great interest. He saves them, He delivers them, He rescues them from all their troubles. And this word troubles in the Hebrew means adversaries or rivals. Instead of appealing to Caesar, we can appeal And cry out and call out to God. Psalm 50, verse 15. Most of these are in the Psalms, but there are some in other places we're going to look at. Psalm 50, verse 15. Pray to me. It means to call on or cry out to me, God says. When you are in trouble, distress, tribulation, or trial. And God says, I will deliver you. And you will honor me. Now, very interestingly, this word deliver (laughs) means to equip for war, to arm, to strengthen. So there's another whole picture. God's saying, look, if you're in trouble, I'll strengthen you. I'm not necessarily going to take you out of this situation, but I will arm you. I will equip you for the battle. I will strengthen you to get through this battle. And when it's all done and you stand victorious and you've overcome, you will honor me. You will give me a greater weight than even what you do now. 
Psalm 56, verse 9. Psalm 56 and verse 9. My enemies, my foes, my adversaries will turn back or retreat when I cry out to you for help. I know that God is on my side. By the way, that word know speaks of a knowledge that's gained by experience. Which brings us back to that important principle of why we need to be continually in fellowship with God and growing in our relationship with God. Because the more we go to God and the more we commune with Him and fellowship with Him, the more we pray, the more we call out, the more we cry out, the more we know by experience that this is who God is and this is what He will do. And by the way, the word God there is the word Elohim, which is plural, which speaks of it's not just one person of the Godhead. The entire Trinity, the triune God, is on my side. We're going to talk about that on Sunday in the message. That the entire Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, is on my side. No wonder God invites us to call out or cry out to Him. One other in the Psalms, Psalm 116, verse 2. Psalm 116, sorry, I'm having a hard time finding it here, here we go, all right, actually I'll read verse 1 too, I love the Lord because he heard my plea for mercy and listened to me, I love this word, it means to stretch, to extend, to bend down, it's a great picture sort of of the great God condescending that, that for God to listen to me requires him to stretch out, to extend himself, to bend down in order to listen. But it's also this beautiful picture of how much he loves and cares and is interested in me. It, this is not a, a great picture, but I think of maybe a, a tiny little child in need of help and here's this great big, you know, strapping adult who has to literally bend down in order to hear the young child and, and what may be troubling him. I mean, magnify that thousands of times over. That's the picture here. That's what God does for us. He listens to us. And then the psalmist says, as long as I live, always, continually, I will call to him when I need help. Wow. I hope that that's becoming more and more in our lives the habit of our lives. That instead of going to others first and God last or that God's the last resort, that when we need help or are, are in anything, that our immediate response is, God, I, I need you. I cry out to you. I call out to you. There's no one greater that I could appeal to. There's no one who could help me more than you can, God. I call out to you. Then look at the book of Jeremiah. This is a very familiar verse to many. Jeremiah chapter 33 and verse 3. Some of you know this verse by heart. Jeremiah 33 Verse 3, God says through the prophet Jeremiah, Call on me in prayer.
prayer. By the way, that phrase, again, direct address. Call on me. You, you don't need to go through anybody else. You, you don't need to. You can come directly to me. Call on me. And I will answer you. I will respond to you. And I will show you or make known to you great and mysterious things which you still don't know about. The word mysterious means inaccessible. There are certain things, obviously, that because we're human and we only have limited knowledge that we don't know, there's a wall there. But because God knows all things, there's things that He will reveal to us if we're willing to call on Him and seek Him. What a great exhortation from God through the prophet Jeremiah. Well, I want to take you now to the New Testament and show you a couple examples of this as we close tonight from the experience of the disciples with Jesus. And I want to first go to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 14. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 14. I'm just going to begin reading to get this because we have the time in verse 22 of Matthew 14. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side, while he dispersed the crowds. And after he sent the crowds away, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. Meanwhile, the boat, already far from land, was taking a beating from the waves because the wind was against it. As the night was ending, Jesus came to them walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the water, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost, and cried out with fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, Have courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, order me to come to you on the water. So he said, Come. Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But notice verse 30. When he saw the strong wind, he became afraid and started to sink and cried out. It speaks of an urgent and desperate scream. I have a feeling Peter screamed pretty good. Because he thought he was going to drown. And notice what he cries out. Lord, save me. Rescue me. Preserve me. Don't let me die. And immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him, saying to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? When they went up into the boat, the wind ceased. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. I'll say this. It's a shame that a lot of times as Christians, we have to wait or we do wait until we're sinking in order to cry out to God. Because it doesn't have to be that way. I mean, yeah, it's great to know that we can cry out to God in our distress and our trials and troubles, but we can cry out and call upon and appeal to God all the time because we have that direct address. We can call upon God at any time and He will respond. One other one, Luke chapter 8, a different instance, but again, they're on the sea. Luke chapter 8. I'm going to begin reading in verse 22. 
One day Jesus got into a boat with his disciples and said to them, let's go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out. And as they sailed, he fell asleep. Now a violent windstorm came down on the lake and the boat started filling up with water and they were in danger and they came and woke him saying, calling him by name, crying out, calling out, Master, Master, we are about to die. And that phrase means that from their perspective, death was certain. That was it. They were going to die. They had concluded they're going to die. By the way, the words master, master, speak of the authority in charge. When they used that term to Jesus, they were saying, you're the authority in charge. And yet, even with him in the boat, they concluded that they were going to die. So he got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waves And they died down, and it was calm. Then he said to them, where is your faith? But they were afraid and amazed, saying to one another, who then is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. I want to go back to verse 24. He got up, rebuked the wind and the waves, and it was calm. The word means tranquil. It means still. And this word took me back to Psalm 46, verse 10, where the Bible says, Be still and know that I am God. There was a storm. And so there was a lack of stillness, if you will. But sometimes it's not even the storms around us. Sometimes it's the storms within us. And that's why God is saying to us, be still. Be calm. Keep your composure. And know that I am God. You can call upon me and cry out to me and pray to me and appeal to me at any time. And I will listen. In fact, with great interest and attention, I'm here. I've never left. I never will. I never will forsake you. As I read through, as I said, Acts 25, it was like, oh, God. What am I going to share with these people out of this chapter? Because this is pretty much a rehash of something we've already... Unlike next week, it's not a rehash. This chapter was a lot of rehash. And then God kept bringing me back to that phrase that Paul uttered before Festus. I appeal to Caesar. And it was like the light bulb went on in my heart and mind. And it was like God reminded me, yeah, that's pretty cool that a human being could appeal to Caesar, but... How about being able to appeal to God? How about being able to call out and cry out to God? And to take our case, if you will, to the highest court in the universe. To the one who's really in charge. And can do something about it. That's our privilege as children of God. 
And we've went through these, and there's so many more verses. The words cry out or call out are used 734 times just in the Old Testament. That's a lot of times. And it's a reminder to us that we need to develop that pattern in our lives of calling out to God and crying out to Him at all times. To pray. That's why these last couple weeks on Sunday I've invited folks to either come up front and have someone pray with you or last week we said just stay where you are, raise your hand and let a few of your brothers and sisters in Christ come around you and pray with you and pray for you about something that, that you want to call out to God and appeal to God over. And I thought to myself, how could I share what I've shared tonight and not also invite us to do the same tonight? So in closing tonight, I'd like us just to take these last couple of minutes before we leave to call out to God to cry out to Him, to pray, and to seek Him for what may be troubling us in any way. And I would like to invite any of you that would like some others to maybe gather around and pray with you or pray for you to raise your hand and take a few minutes to end our Tuesday night Bible study by spending some time calling upon the Lord. So let me pray and then let's continue in prayer. Father, use these next few minutes, God, in our lives to settle us, to calm us, to help us to know that you are God and be able to be still, both inside and and outside, no matter what's happening around us or in us, God, help us to acknowledge who you are. That you're in control. That you are the one in authority. And God, that we can appeal to you and call upon you and cry out to you right now for whatever, Lord, is happening in our lives. So God, I'm just going to ask right now that we would take a few moments and just spend some time in prayer with you. And I'm also just going to ask right now that if there's any of you here tonight that would like a couple of your brothers and sisters in Christ to come alongside and pray with you, would you just slip your hand up real quick and give some people an opportunity to come alongside of you and pray with you about something tonight before we leave? Anyone at all? Lord, we are so thankful that God, human beings are as high as we can go when we need help. Remind us, God, as your people and as your children that we can always go higher than even human beings. We can go directly to you. The God who loves us who gave himself for us, 
and who has a great plan and purpose for our lives. The God who sustains this universe and keeps it running every second of the day. Without God, your preserving power, the universe would implode. And yet, God, you listen to each and every one of us with great attention and interest. And so, God, I pray right now that whatever is on the hearts of these dear people tonight, whatever may be troubling them, whatever may be unsettling them, God, I pray that they have been encouraged and reminded to call upon You. To cry out to You. To pray to You. May we be a people who is growing in prayer. And not only, Lord, learning to call upon You more in our own lives, but encouraging others to call upon You as well. And Lord, we even think about your own disciples. That in two separate incidents, when they thought they were going to die, you were there to rescue and to save. God, I don't know what these folks are going through or what they're dealing with. But I know who you are. And I know you can help every one of us. So God, may we look to you for our help. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all for being here tonight. We'll see you next week.